I have now lived in the United States for 22 years, and it has been an amazing journey so far. I got to say that as a person who moved in, uh, to, to the United States from Ecuador, there have been things that have been very easy to adapt to and some things that have been pretty difficult to adapt to. And uh, one of the things that has been the easiest thing to adapt is that people arrive on time in the United States. Can I get an amen? I mean, like, it's nothing against my people in Ecuador. I love you guys. But I remember us trying to start church on time was one of the hardest things to do. But, like, 30 minutes into the service, we were just getting warmed up. And we hadn't even launched. And it was a two-hour service. It was, a, you guys, thank you for having that as a part of your culture. I love it. <laughs> Another thing that has been really special for me is that, um, the fact that it, Houston is so diverse that we have foods from all over the world. I'm a foodie. I love uh, trying different things from different parts of the world. And we don't have to go anywhere. We can just go, like, to a different neighborhood and find the most amazing restaurants. And buffets, guys. I mean, I didn't even know the concept <laughs> when I moved to America. My dad was so fascinated by the concept of a buffet that he wanted me to sneak some Ziploc bags because he hated the fact that so much food was going to waste. It was really absurd. And uh, I still don't understand it, honestly. <laughs> uh, the third thing, movies and entertainment. Uh, guys, I, uh, Eric has preached so much about that, making fun of me. But I do feed the inner teenager in me by watching Twilight over and over again. I, I'm sorry. I know it's the shallow part of me that I'm trying to get rid of. The Lord is helping me. Um, I also feel that lately I have lost my husband and kids to Fortnite. I don't know if anybody, can I get an amen? I feel that I'm going to start getting reacquainted with them after it goes away like Pokemon Go went away. Let's pray about that. Uh, now, on to the things that are hard to get used to. The number one thing that was very hard to get used to, and it still is, is the busyness of life here in the United States. In Ecuador, we even had, a, like, an assigned nap time. Like, you know, if you were at work or you were tired, go nap, you know, and then come back and refresh. It's a very noble concept, guys. I like it. Uh, in here, uh, the only way that we can rest is by getting out of town. That's how I understand why everybody disappears during spring break, because you have to leave to rest in Houston. The second thing is the way in which you guys use the word love. It's hard for a Spanish speaker. Um, and it's probably because in my country, we don't use the word love, which is te amo, um, very often. We only use it to describe very transcendental things like the love of God, the love between a spouse, uh, the love for children, and that's it. But in here, we use love for everything. Like last Friday, I made a list of the many times that I used the word love. I started with something so Houston, guys. I love breakfast tacos. I mean, like, <laughs> let's be real. We all do. Uh, then I came here to the church, and I saw a staff member wearing the cutest shoes and the cutest coat. I was like, I just love those shoes and, those, and that coat. They're so cute. And then I met with a friend for breakfast and uh, well, second breakfast, coffee. Um, and I told her, uh, you're the sweetest person. I love you. And uh, then I came back to the church and met with somebody. And I, they were going through a very hard time. I said, I love you. God loves you. Don't give up. Then Eric showed up and I said, I'm really mad at you. I really love those tacos because I was mad. Uh, he, he didn't invite me to my favorite Mexican restaurant for lunch. <laughs> then I went home 
and I told my kids I love them. Then I told Eric I love him again. Then I said uh, I love, really love my dog in reference to my new puppy. Then I said I love the weather in reference to rainy weather. And then I said I love you, God. Thank you for everything. Bedtime prayer. Whew, are you all tired? <laughs> that was a lot of love. Um, yet I have learned as a Spanish speaker, like as somebody who's, who learned Spanish first, to, to internally translate what I really mean by love, 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 love. So internally when I say I love tacos, what I'm really saying is me encantan los tacos. But one wouldn't go around translating tacos enchant me or I'm under a taco spell, right? I mean, that's not something you would do. It's, you know, you use the word love. Uh, yet having one word for so many different meanings is bound to confuse us and to make us think that uh, one love equals the other and that most types of love are the same. And that is especially dangerous path for, us, path for us to take whenever we're referring to the love of God, to the perfect, uh, infallible, eternal agape love of God. I really appreciate this quote from uh, Dr. and theologian uh, A.W. Tozer. He says, a God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. If we insist upon trying to imagine him, we end up with an idol, made not with hands but with our thoughts. And an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Left to ourselves, we tend to immediately reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God that we can in some measure control. It was very convicting for me to read this quote. And I, and I know, trust me, I know that we don't mean any harm when we mostly use the word love to describe God. It's almost ingrained in us at this point in time. However, when phrases like God is love, which by the way comes from 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, are used over and over again outside of the context in which it was intended. It was intended in the context, context of that entire chapter, 1 John chapter 4. Then what we do is we try to equate it to the type of human loves that we understand and we, that we know so well. So we end up extrapolating the meaning of the word and changing it all together. Whenever we read uh, passages like that without really understanding what agape love means, then we really think that it's one of the emotions that we feel for others. Uh, the Bible mentions that there are three different types of love other than agape and mentions storja, which is the love that we feel for those who are closest to us, for our family members, for our, like a mother-child relationship, a father-child, a grandparent, for those who are closest to us. Then it mentions about uh, eros, which is a romantic type of love, a physical type of love. And then he talks about philia, which is the love that we find, the love of neighbor, the, the love that we find with those closest friendships that we have. So without a solid scriptural understanding of the different types of love, when we read a passages like God is love, we tend to equate them to those human types of love. However, just a couple of verses later, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is what it says. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved 
us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is a far more complex concept than any kind of human love that we know because it involves repentance, it involves redemption, it, revo- it, it involves Jesus dying on a cross to show us what this love is all about. Dr. Tozer also expands on this concept and I love this quote and I almost hesitated to read it to you guys because it's, it's very hard for me to read this quote. I practiced it 20 times, here it goes. Had the apostle declared that love is what God is, we would be forced to infer that God is what love is. If literally God is love, then literally love is God. And we are all duty-bound to worship love as the only God there is. If love is equal to God, then God is only equal to love. And God and love are identical. Thus, we destroy the concept of the personality in God and deny outright all his attributes save one. And that one we tend to substitute for God. That was hard. As a church, that we're in a path of expanding and inspiring even more non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus, I think it is time for us to elevate our concept of what agape means. To elevate our concept of, uh, to elevate the way in which we relate and understand God. And that is a concept that's known in the Bible as epiphany. Now, I know there's, there might be some church nerds here that say, like, it's not the season for epiphany, Pastor Gio. I don't care. I don't care. Let's make that clear. But epiphany helps me uh, when I read the holy encounters with, with us human. Those encounters in the Bible help, help remind me how I ought to relate to God. And one of those encounters is between Moses and God. Whenever Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he's about to get the Ten Commandments to bring them down, to, down for the Israelites. And uh, he encounters God. There's a story about a burning bush. There's a story about like God telling him, I'm going to send you no matter what. There's a lot that happens in the story. But the part I'm fascinated with is the part when, when Moses tells God, so whenever I go back down, who, sh- who should I say you are? And God says, you can call me Yahweh. I am who I am. It is one of the greatest mysteries in scripture. Because it describes a being that is, that is. A being that is not dependent on us, the created, to exist. A being that is not dependent on anything to exist. A being that is infinite. A being that, 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 that created us, that made us, that formed us, that shaped us. And that gave us love because God is love. So agape should be hard for us to comprehend, to wrap our minds around. Because it is the description, one of the descriptions of a God who exists, who is, who made us, who formed us, who is infinite, who is other, who is nothing like us. So when we are touched by that perfect divine love, it changes everything. And there is one way. One way, scripturally speaking, that we are able to grasp the concept of that love. And that is in John chapter 14. This is what Jesus says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, 
you do know him and you have seen him. I have been, and then he tells Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Don't you believe that, and then he says, the words that say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I said that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. There have been about three times in my life in which God puts a scripture in my heart and the scripture just will not leave me alone. I keep thinking about it and reading it during my breaks, during lunch, uh, anytime. And this last week I had one of those moments in which God put a story in my life uh, from John chapter 8. This is the story. It's a story of a woman who was caught cheating on her husband. The Pharisees and religious authorities of that time found her in the act and they basically grab her and drag her because they want to take her to the temple to see what Jesus says about it. They want Jesus to judge her and while they're doing that, they want to test Jesus to make sure that he follows the law of Moses, which commands them, by the way, that she should be stoned to death for her sin. So they drag her, they finally come to Jesus, and Jesus, in true Jesus' fashion, he is just there, present with the people, and he is writing something on the ground with his finger. I wonder what he was writing. These people are crazy. <laughs> Maybe, right? But the religious authorities, the religious mob is out for blood. They want a judgment on this woman because this woman has committed a terrible sin. They want, her, they want to stone her to death. They insist so much that Jesus finally looks up and he basically tells them, whoever is free of sin ought to throw the first stone. And what he says is like a mirror of grace that he puts in front of them. And what they're looking at is pretty ugly. It's ugly. They're all convicted and one by one they start throwing the stones on the floor and walking away because none of them is free of sin by any means. Finally, only Jesus and the woman are left there. And this is what Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and live your life of sin. So on Monday when I felt the story just nagging at me over and over again, I thought, oh my goodness, it's got to be me. I probably have had some bad thoughts I need to repent from. I never really got to the repentance part. I just woke up on Tuesday and thought, no, 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 this has to be about somebody else. I need to pray for God to tell me who in the church is you know, cheating on their spouse. <laughs> I need to pray for them. And that wasn't it. So the story was still in my heart. And, and then I got up on Wednesday and I said, well, you know, it probably wasn't something that's happened recently. Maybe somebody who had already cheated is getting tempted again. I need to pray for them. God, please tell me who they are so I can pray for them. <laughs> nothing came. Nothing at all. You guys are doing fine. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. 
By Thursday, I was starting to get irritated because I was like, God, well, the sermon's coming up on Sunday. I don't know why I'm dwelling on John chapter 8 because that's not helping me at all. And as I'm getting irritated about this passage nagging at me, then I felt something very clear. And God told me very clear, you are that woman. And then it became even clearer. It said, you're all that woman. And that's the moment when you discover agape love. Whenever you realize that you are that woman. When you realize that you've come to your lowest possible point. When you realize that you've abandoned God. That you've forsaken him for the things of this world. That you've forsaken him because you choose to dwell and live in your sin. Over him. Over everything else. That's the moment when you discover agape love. Because you are there at Jesus' feet. And he comes down to your level. And instead of judging you, instead of condemning you, instead of punishing you, he shows you agape love. He shows you a love that is so perfect that it doesn't compare to anything that you have ever felt before. It is holy. It is other. It is a love that originates from some other place that we don't really grasp, grasp or understand. But Jesus gives us a glimpse of that love. It is a powerful thing. And it transforms us. It never leaves us the same. It changes us from the inside out. So our actions, our thoughts, everything about us is changed forever. He gives us a love that is patient, that is kind, that doesn't boast, a love that is not proud, a love that's that does not dishonor us. A love that is not self-seeking. A love that doesn't keep records of wrong. A love that does not delight in evil, but that rejoices in the truth. A love that protects, that trusts, that hopes, that perseveres. And a love that never ends. That's the moment when I'm sitting at Barnes & Noble drinking my hot chocolate. That spills all over the place. And I realize what a wretch am I to deserve this type of love. Yet agape is so powerful that it is freely given to us. It is a gift. It is something that we never will ever deserve. Yet God loves us so fiercely, so completely that he gives it freely to us through Jesus. That is why Jesus is the greatest revelation of God's love. But Jesus is not one that loves without any accountability. Jesus loves with grace and with truth. Jesus comes and says, I love you, my child. Now go and sin no more. And Jesus doesn't just leave us alone in that path to sin no more. He says, you have the Holy Spirit. And I died the most gruesome death to conquer sin, to conquer death. So you can also conquer all things through my name. Then what are we to do in response to this great and powerful and infinite love? All that we can do is to come on our knees, find ourselves in a place where that woman was. And with humility in our hearts. Repent and say, I accept agape. Then Jesus takes over and sends us on our way and says, now go and sin no more. I am with you. 
Now you can go on sin no more because I will help you in the journey. I am with you always. This kind of love is so potent that it also restores the other kinds of love that we love with. When agape love influences storage our love, then whenever we love our family, we no longer make idols of them. We, we, we trust that God is in their lives and we love them unconditionally and we love them sacrificially. Agape love also restores and perfects Eros love. It helps us to love within the boundaries that God gives us in the scripture. It helps us to forgive even when our spouse does something egregious. We think, well, God loved me with such great love, then therefore I can also forgive. I can also move from this because God loves me so much. I am empowered to love my spouse with a love that is like God's love. Agape love also restores filial love. It helps us to love others sacrificially and with a love that transcends. It makes us love our friends, care for them. Love them as we love ourselves. Because I imagine after that, love, that woman had an encounter with Jesus, she was never ever the same again. She could finally love herself enough to love others as God calls us to love others. Agape love is powerful. And it transforms us. It restores us. It makes us more in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is the response? What, what are we to do? We are called to humble ourselves before God. We're called to call upon his name. We're called, we're called to call upon the name of Jesus. Because the moment that we call upon Jesus, then he comes and helps us restore all kinds of other loves in our lives. And trust me when I say this, even God, through that, that agape will even help you love your enemies. Because of how powerful that love is. Lately I find myself praying for people who have done terrible things to me. And I know that, that, that it's been a bad situation. But I don't care. Because if God forgave a wretch like me, then I am also empowered. I have the spirit and it allows me to forgive any of the most wretched people that I've ever known. And to love them unconditionally. God's love transforms. God's love restores. God's love is unlike any other love we've ever known. So I hope that today, if you don't know that love, that you will come before God and ask him to, to speak to your heart, to show you a glimpse. And with humility, I invite you to accept that invitation to, to receive that free, amazing gift, unmerited gift that is given to you today. Please pray with me. Jesus, we are humbled by the opportunity that you give us to be called your sons. I mean, you, thank you for the opportunity to be called your people. You're, you love us so much. You care for us so much. You have given us everything that we've ever wanted and more and we don't deserve any of that thank you for that love thank you for dying that death on the cross the kind of death that we deserved thank you for your presence in this place for restoring our hearts we come humble before you and we pray that you will make us new once again 
We give you everything in this moment. And we trust that your presence is powerful enough to restore us, to move us, and to, and to change everything from within. We pray in your precious name. Amen.